It accelerated very quickly. One of the first houses I worked in for a designer had like a secret room, like a secret room that went from the man's office, you know, into a library, into a back bedroom. And I just remember thinking, Lord, what am I even doing here? Like, how am I even like rubbing elbows with these people? I remember after that first year of owning the painting company, I sat down with a friend of mine to do taxes and she was like, okay, so how much did the painting company bring in this year? And it hadn't even been a full year, by the way, of working. It had been less than a full year. And again, this was 20 years ago. And I said, 90,000. And she said, 9,000. I go, no, 90,000. She's like, you, you made $90,000 this year. And I'm like, I know nobody is more shocked than I am. Like what is even happening to my life? This is Finding Founders, and that was Jennifer Allwood describing the realization that she was making enough money to quit her day job and pursue painting full-time. In this clip, we see Jennifer's passion. She not only makes a living with interior design, but she also tells intimate stories through her decor, breathing life into seemingly inanimate objects. This work goes deeper than just herself. She's intensely religious and views Christianity as a philosophy that not only establishes personal success, but allows her to engage and uplift a great community. As the founder of The Magic Brush, the host of The Jennifer Allwood Show, and a Christian business coach, she has taken her passion from decorating and turned it into a personal brand, reaching countless others to help them unlock their creative potential. But Jennifer's world wasn't always so colorful. I grew up in a small town in Iowa when I was growing up. I think there was 1,200 people, just a really small, lovely farm community. If you are familiar with being raised in a small town, you know that everybody knows all of your business. And I knew that I didn't love that. I wanted to live somewhere bigger and somewhere prettier. I knew those two things, but I didn't necessarily know where. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with where I was being raised. I just knew that the world was a really big place. I grew up in a home that was pretty, but it was also very vanilla. In other words, there was uh, there was no color. Kids were not allowed to really like decorate anything or, you know, put posters all over the walls or anything like that. And so I can remember growing up, my dad saying to me, you know, when you get your own house one day, like you can do whatever you want, but while you live here, the walls are white. Uh, we're not going to be turning around your furniture, you know, those sorts of things. I was raised Catholic. My parents were not churchgoers, but I went to like CCD classes, was baptized, all those things in the Catholic church. But from ashes to ashes and from dust to dust. Having been, you know, in the Catholic church every Wednesday night of my life, um, there was lots of rules. When I was 16, and this was a pivotal moment in my life, my best friend invited me to her church and it was a non-denominational Christian church. And I remember like every time I'd hear her talk about church, it was more of like, I get to do this. This is so amazing. And when I would think of church, I would think, oh, geez, I got to I got to stink and go to CCD class again on Wednesday night. So I get to her church and there was a youth pastor who was speaking. And I just remember that he just did an invitation for people to just come up front and give their life to the Lord. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I am being pulled out of my seat right now. <laughs> and, and I obviously wasn't, but I was like, why is my heart beating so fast? Why do I feel like all the blood's running to my face? You know, and later I realized, okay, that's really like the Holy Spirit and that's God kind of, you know, moving you. I just remember looking at my best friend, Rachel, and her looking at me and she said, Jennifer, if you want to go up front, I'll hold your hand and I'll go with you. And so I did. It felt like the safest place on earth. I remember feeling that. I just felt like, I feel like this is something I'm supposed to be doing. I feel like I've kind of found a place where I belong. And I just remember looking around the room going, I don't know what it is that these people have, but I want it. Was it like an inner peace? I hear this theme of looking for peace and joy and safety. Yeah, for sure. It was all of those things. I think it's something hard to put into words. What I've always said is you just, you know, in your knower, like I knew in my knower, I'm supposed to get my bed up and walk to the front right now. So that was by far the most pivotal moment in my life. It seems that faith first finds most converts when they're most vulnerable. And Jennifer was no exception. Her whole life, she had longed for a sense 
of belonging. And during a period of exploratory uncertainty, she opened her heart to God and found everything she was looking for. This faith, even more than the belief she had in herself, would prove vital for her path moving forward. She harbored a burning itch for creative expression. She craved personal expansion beyond the quaint reality of her small town. And she got her first taste of freedom when she boarded her flight to college. I went to college um, in Wayne, Nebraska, which is a, you know, another small town, but there were enough people in the college that I was like, whoa, like this is something here. I mean, I didn't realize there was anything other than Thousand Island salad dressing until I went to college. And that is no lie. On the flip side of that was basically this very sheltered small town girl who hadn't been exposed to a whole lot, basically just went wild for a year. So um, I'm saying that all to say I blew my scholarship the first year because I literally like had so much fun, did a lot of the typical college things. My grades suffered dramatically. And so I was not able to renew that scholarship. It affected actually a lot of things. It kind of changed the whole trajectory, I think, of my life. So after that first year of college, um, when I had dropped out, I remember being at the grocery store in the small town that I lived in. There's only one grocery store. And I remember running into a high school coach of mine, Mr. C. You remember him asking me, so tell me about college. And I remember me telling him, you know what? I'm taking a break. Which by the way, taking a break from college always means that you've you've basically stopped. (laughs) He said, Jennifer... Every time I have a kid tell me that, they never actually go back. And I just remember thinking, he he doesn't know. I'm for sure going to go back. Like one of these days, I'm going to go back. You know, I went home in between after my freshman year and and decided that it was really hard to come home from college and reacclimate to family rules. So I remember my parents sitting me down and they basically said, okay, so you have two little brothers and they're watching everything you do. And if you're going to live back at the house, like you have to just kind of live by the household rules or you're going to have to find someplace else to live. And I remember I had moved out then by the weekend. Uh, moved in with a group of friends. It was just a year or two later, we decided a couple of us to move to Kansas City from the small town that I grew up in. You know, I didn't have the rules of a dorm and I didn't have the rules of being at home with mom and dad. Suddenly as an, uh, you know, an apartment renter, I was like, oh my goodness, I might not be able to like paint all the walls, but I can decorate any old way I want to. That's when I figured out I really had a love for like garage sales and um, thrift stores and things like that. And most of that was uh, simply because I was still a broke 19 year old, but I figured out how to really make a pretty home myself, even at the age of 19. Why was that important to you? It was a really good way to express myself. I realized like when I decorated my home with things that made me feel good, oddly enough, I felt good. It was really important to me that the space that I was in for the majority of the day felt home. It felt like a place that I wanted to come home to. It felt like me. It felt like something that was mine. It felt like it had my signature all over it. You know, after years of, of not being able to kind of do what I wanted, it was like, well, I, I've heard my dad a million times say, when you get a place of your own someday, you can do whatever you want. And I'm like, and here we go. You mentioned like it was an, uh, like almost an extension of yourself and a way for you to interact with your friends. Do you know like what you were exactly trying to express? I think I was more just trying to, con- to create a space that felt peaceful. It also brought me a lot of peace to like use my gifts. Like I knew that I just kind of had a knack for like decorating and putting things together and arranging stuff on a wall. Like, and I think when you're operating in your gifts that that gives you just a lot of internal joy. The dichotomy between Jennifer's childhood and her first experience living alone in her own apartment turned out to be of great value. The discipline in her early life instilled in her a sense of responsibility while her willingness to forge her own path taught her the power of individuality. She began to fill her life with this, 
and that joy trickled and transcended into the spaces that she was living. Back, you know, when I was 21-ish, I can just remember like laying on the floor and going through the Sunday paper and seeing houses for rent. And I remember looking at a house that was for sale. There was an ad in the paper and they said something in the ad about um, first time home buyers, like this is great for you. And just, just on a whim, I just called the number. I mean, cause why not? Met the real estate agent at this house, walked through it. Um, it was a three bedroom. It was a one bath. It was in a really cute part of town. It was a block away from a really lovely park and one car garage in Kansas city. It was just a great starter house. And so I was there with a real estate agent and he was saying, you know, so Kansas city had this program at the time where there was some money from the city that was helping first time home buyers who were female um, and single buy their first home. And essentially you'd have to apply for this and they would basically pay for one one third of the cost of your house for you. And I was like, really? And he, and he was like, he was like, I think that you would actually qualify. And I'm like, that is just the weirdest thing ever. Like it was one of those things where I just kind of kept taking the next step that was in front of me. And let's just see what happens. Cause the house is adorable. And it wasn't like I was trying to buy a house. And before you know it, I'm being approved for a loan where the city is basically taking care of a third of it right off the top. And I remember my mortgage on that house, I believe was 300 $87 a month. Can you even imagine? And I remember just thinking, okay, I think, I think I can do that at 21. And, um, and what do you know? I bought my first house. Jennifer bought her first house at the age of 21. Let that sink in for a moment. For reference, less than 35% of people under the age of 35 owned a home at that time. It takes tremendous conviction to make such a big move at such a young age. Dropping out of college is something that should never be done casually, but it turned out to be the right move for Jennifer's creative soul. She trusted her instincts when they told her to drop out, and she trusted them again when they told her to buy a house. The faith she had in herself freed her mind from the clutter that complicates the decision-making process. Jennifer didn't know it at the time, but this home would become an integral part of her creative journey. You had this this thing that was pretty and maybe a bit peaceful, but it wasn't quite yours yet. It didn't have your touch. And so looking around that empty house, how did you start thinking about, okay, like I need to do something with this? I was 21. And so while I could make the mortgage, I couldn't do much more than that. And so I had a, what I call champagne taste on a Budweiser budget. So I was like, okay, so I really want it to be pretty and feel pretty. And I knew that it wasn't going to be something that happened overnight. You know, I worked on making it mine um, a room at a time. The kitchen cabinets were horrible. They were hideous. And one day I was walking through a hardware store and I saw this spray paint. It was supposed to make things kind of like rough and kind of feel gritty. And it was kind of edgy, I think. <laughs> so I just remember thinking to myself, well, what would happen if I painted my kitchen cabinets with that? Went home, took a kitchen cabinet off the hinges, took it into the basement, spray painted it and was like, oh, my goodness, that looks a million times better than what it used to. I think that's like where I kind of got really addicted to understanding how paint could transform a space. I know that sounds like so silly, but I was like, man, paint is like a really cheap way to change the entire look of a room. I was A, proud of myself, but then B, I was like, I can't believe that it looks like I did like a little mini remodel. So the whole thing felt fresh and updated. And, you know, even now there's times when I just, it's not that a room isn't already pretty, but I just need change. As any good designer should, Jennifer approached her home renovation with great patience. The more she did her own work, the more she loved it. This DIY attitude helped her discover her innate talent for painting and an even greater level of trust in her aesthetic instincts. 
Jennifer was trying to be responsible. So she doubled down on the corporate world, on her role at the insurance company, and her commitment to education. You know, so I got into the 20s where I was, you know, then having to make a mortgage and working a lot. And, you know, I would every once in a while, I would think about going back to college, but I just, uh, I don't know. It just felt like another thing at the moment. But then I found out that the insurance company that I was working for was willing to pay for my college if I passed. And so it kind of was like, well, this is kind of a no brainer. So I was 25-ish when I re-enrolled in college, which meant night school because, you know, I worked full-time during the day. So I started back to school. And uh, how was your experience starting up again different from uh, the first try? Well, I didn't flunk, I can tell you that. (laughs) So there's something that really is different about going to school at 18 or going to college at 18 and going at 25. I really just took it much more serious. And also there was just this, I think with age comes just a little more like, I'm really wanting to do good at this for me too. Like, you know, just for my own, like showing myself that I can do it. A little bit before graduation, you went to a decorative painting show. Is that right? Yeah. I met the man I married when I think I was 24. Lucky for me, he really liked projects and, you know, um, doing things around the house and remodeling and stuff as well. So we were in our late twenties when we went one year to the home show and there was a booth set up with a couple from a little town in Kansas and they owned a decorative painting studio. All I know is I walked into this, you know, 12 by 12 booth and they had all of these cabinet doors lined up on the wall with like different paint finishes. So like one was crackled, one was blue with a glaze. Another was like, you know, chippy white paint. And I can remember standing in that space and my heart rate like accelerating. That still happens to me today. When I go into a store that has beautiful things, I literally will have a physical like reaction to it. It's like a kid in a candy store, except it's like a woman in a home decor store. It's amazing. So I remember walking in this booth and just being like, I have found the mother load. And so we met these couple who they teach people how to do this for a living. They owned a painting company where they, yes, painted inside of people's houses, but also had like a painting studio and a painting school where they brought people to their home and taught them how to do different paint finishes. And I told my husband, I'm like, I totally want to go to one of their weekend like workshops where they would teach you like 12 different ways you could paint walls and cabinets. And I came home from that two day painting class and my graduation with a degree in computer-based information systems was just months away. And I knew I was graduating with honors top of my class. Um, I knew that was I was going to be positioned really well, you know, for a huge increase at work and all of those things. But I came home from that two-day class and I told my husband, I think I want to start a painting company. <laughs> Jennifer was ready to start. This class had planted a seed in her mind, one that sprouted differently from its peers. Her creative thirst had been assuaged by her ability to transform paint into marble. Still, she was torn. She was to graduate with a degree that was empowering, but would take her down a different path from the creative route she had yearned to explore. It took her down a path more stable, more responsible. But how could she give the thing that had always made her feel like a kid in the candy shop? Either way, Jennifer knew that she was within an arm's reach of something good. She just had to focus to get there. Did that feel like a risk because like you just spent four years like with the intention okay I can increase my standing and then one month before the finish line you're like uh wait what's up (laughs) yeah so you know what looking back I think that I have done a lot of things because they were the responsible thing to do Super responsible people don't work one job, they work two jobs. Super responsible people do the 401k and get the match and all of the things. We take advantage of everything they offer us, including going back to college because they pay for it. Like we're responsible. So we do all those things we're supposed to, but that doesn't mean that while we're being responsible, that we're not having this internal conflict where we feel like we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing, but oh my gosh, is there not more to life than this? 
So even though I was in like corporate America and I'm sitting in a cubicle, I did have something in my heart that was like, gosh, this seems so boring. There has to be more to life than this. I had this internal conflict where I was like, the responsible girl goes to work every day. But then there was this other part of me that was like, let's go to this painting school. Like, this is going to be so much fun. The other part of me was like, but I want to start a painting business because that sounds like something that I could do. And it just kind of makes my heart beat fast. And it creates like this feeling of excitement inside of me. And in my head, it wasn't like that I was going to be serious with it. I was just going to kind of play around with it on the nights and the weekends. But did that choice at all feel similar or bring back those feelings when you were in the small town and you were young and wanting more and wanting to explore the world? Were you tapping into those kind of same emotions? I think I was tapping into feeling like for a long, long time in my life, I've done what other people have told me to do. I've done the responsible thing. I've done what society expects me to do and feeling like I was kind of throwing elbows a little bit on the inside, like just wanting something different than what I think was expected of me. And the truth is like, when I look at that, it's not like my parents were expecting that of me. I had put that expectation just kind of on myself. And I think there's some expectancy where the responsible thing to do is you get a good job and then you kind of keep moving up the chain and then eventually you retire and then you die. But there was something inside of me that just was like a little bit rebellious with that concept, which was like, I don't want to live paycheck to paycheck. I don't really care about PDOs. Like, I'd like to have a month of vacation. Like, why do we only get two weeks? You know, there was just that little part of me that was like looking around going, is anybody else tired of meetings? That was the conversation I was having in my head. Like, I am late 20s. I'm a grown up with a mortgage. (laughs) And, you know, like, I didn't like that feeling of other people being the boss of me, honestly. I felt really fortunate that I had a husband that said, you know what, go for it. In the years leading up to this pivot, the creative freedom that beckoned her was becoming progressively harder to resist. Jennifer found herself reckoning with the numbing reality of her secure nine to five, the mundanity of the cubicle of her crisp tailored suit. As she ventured further into adulthood, She groaned at the prospect of walking into yet another corporate stronghold. She had learned to be impeccably responsible, but could she continue? Would she choose a 401k or the familiar endearing smell of wet paint freshly rolled onto a wall? As she neared the end of her structured education, she had a choice to make. Be the impassioned creative who painted textures on the door or settle for what was common, what was normal. But at this point, normal no longer felt like an option. Hence, Magic Brush was born. So I knew from the beginning, like if I'm going to play around with this little side gig, you know, I need to make sure it's set up as a legit business. So I literally sat down with a pen and paper. I did a brain dump. I wrote down all the words that I kind of liked. And then I just tried to kind of arrange them into different, you know, two or three word lines. And I did this for a couple months. And one day I just held my own feet to the fire. And I was like, look, you're never going to get these business cards printed. And you're never going to get stuff set up with your accountant if you don't stick and just pick. And so I literally did like an eeny, meeny, miny, mo, picked which one I hated the least and went with it. It ended up being the magic brush. People get hung up on the small stuff. And at the end of the day, the name doesn't matter nearly as much as actually getting it started. And so what did getting started look like? Because you had to get clients and and, uh, and start. All of my first clients initially were people that I worked with during the day. I worked at the insurance company for a while and a couple of them hired me to do little projects, you know, to draw a mural in a room of somebody's kitchen. Some lady hired me to, you know, repaint a bedroom and then there was a kitchen cabinet job. And so they knew and were supportive that I was trying to do something on the side. I think that also they knew that I was never really cut out for a nine to five job. And I think that I just, a couple of my first clients, they were super supportive because they knew that I was supposed to be doing something different. I loved working with my hands. I loved taking something that looked like nothing and making it look gorgeous, making it look like a magazine photo. 
I loved the physical part of what we were doing. Also, I loved getting my hands dirty. I loved the smell of paint. I loved all of it. I loved my husband being there helping me in the early days. I loved the response that I got from clients when I made something, you know, gorgeous in their home. And I just loved watching their reaction to that. Because I was doing for them what I had done in my own apartment years ago. I was helping them to create a space that felt good for them. Literally, I was faking it. I was faking the fact that I was confident because I really wasn't. I I wasn't really like even that talented, I don't think, but I was willing to try things. And so those early days were fun. They were fun because they were, there was no pressure because I had a day job. And I was able to just really kind of get my feet wet and really kind of determine, okay, I'm really enjoying this. Like, this is so much fun. And that lasted for a moment until I got laid off from the day job and then everything got serious. (laughs) Things became serious when Jennifer was laid off from her day job. But her description of the time leading up to this point reveals a reckless embracement of learning, a period for exploration and growth. She describes this chapter as her faking it, leaning on passion and dedication to keep her hoisted up on the scaffold. She approaches these early days with humility, but she realized she had the power to bring the same aura of beauty and serenity to the space of others that she had done for herself all these years before. Realistically, her heart was here with her brushes. It wasn't secured to a desk. And this, well, this had an impact. You know, I spent a lot of time during the day, basically stealing the time of my employer and dreaming about this other thing that I really wanted to do. And then I got laid off. And I remembered that I boohooed for days because I was like, okay, well, even though I didn't really work full-time hours, like how could they not want me there anymore? You know, and so I boohooed for a couple of days and I thought, okay, while I'm waiting to get another desk job that in my heart, I figured I'd probably eventually hate too. Like, let me just see what would happen if I would go all in on the painting thing and just try to make enough money to like, you know, kind of keep us at the same level of life and not have to dig into our savings stuff until I get the next day job that, you know, is the responsible thing to do. And so back then the yellow pages were totally a thing. And I looked up every single interior designer in my part of Kansas City, ripped out the yellow pages. I called every one of them, or if they had a store, I showed up on their doorstep for, not at their home, because that would be weird, but at their business with my little portfolio. It was like, do you have any clients who need any, you know, painting done in their home? I recently just went to school. Was that scary? No, there was nothing to lose. I was already like jobless (laughs) and um, all there was really to lose was ego, but really like I was hungry. And I think that when you're hungry, you're willing to do things that you might otherwise not. I just kept saying to myself, what would happen if I could actually like make some money off of this painting company? What, what would actually happen? I didn't know what entrepreneurship looked like. I had no experience with that. You just don't know what you don't know. So I was going in blind. It accelerated very quickly. One of the first houses I worked in for a designer had like a secret room, like a secret room that went from the man's office, you know, into a library, into a back bedroom. And I just remember thinking, Lord, what am I even doing here? Like, how am I even like rubbing elbows with these people? I remember after that first year of owning the painting company, I sat down with a friend of mine to do taxes and she was like, okay, so how much did the painting company bring in this year? And it hadn't even been a full year, by the way, of working. It had been less than a full year. And again, this was 20 years ago. And I said, 90,000. And she said, 9,000. I go, no, 90,000. She's like, you, you made $90,000 this year. And I'm like, I know nobody is more shocked than I am. Like what is even happening to my life? And, you know, that was a huge, huge deal and such an eye opener for me. And what was interesting is in those first couple of months, and I started meeting with those designers and they started getting me a, cute, a couple of jobs. I was still interviewing for desk jobs. I interviewed for a huge company in Kansas City called Cerner. And this was a very reputable company. Everybody wanted to work for them. I remember that I interviewed with them. I had a second interview with them. People told me they pay, they will pay you really well, but they're going to, they're going to own you. Like they're going to want 50, 60 hours a week, not just 40. And I remember they offered me $50,000 a year, which again, 20 years ago was huge. And, um, and I was like $50,000 a year. 
And I remember sitting down with my husband and he's like, well, honey, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to tell him no. And he's like, well, then tell him no. And I just remember thinking, I can't even believe I'm doing this. Like everybody's going to think I'm crazy because this is such a good company to work for. And, you know, they have great benefits and all of the things because that super responsible girl would have said yes because of fabulous benefits and a 401k match and, you know, all of those things. And I just kind of went baller and I was like, yeah, no, no, I think I'm going to try this painting thing. That's how the magic brush literally began. It was almost like Jennifer constantly had these two versions of herself whispering in her ear, the super responsible girl and the risk taking artist, a duel between the person she had always known and the one who had only just recently begun to take shape. But the idea of returning to another desk job, listening to the murmurs of another ticking clock was almost inconceivable. In this unfamiliar space of intangible unknown, Jennifer recognized she had nothing to lose. Out of her comfort zone, perhaps, but for Jennifer, it paid off. But the change of career wasn't the only anticipated change that was heading her direction. We made $90,000 that first year and then found out that I was pregnant with our first son. It just started my business and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. okay, okay. So this is a, it happened a little quicker than we expected. So now what do we do? Because I've got this business that I just started and I love it. I don't want to give it up, but how am I going to continue painting while I'm pregnant? And my doctor was like, you know what? I think you're okay. As long as you're using water-based paint products, which I was, and you're not in a lot of fumes and you're being really careful going up and down a ladder. And I was like, okay, bet. So I'll keep going. So I was fine continuing up and down ladders and on scaffolding and everything until I was about eight months pregnant. And at eight months pregnant, I was the size of like a small Volkswagen. (laughs) And so I can remember one day going, I was painting in a lady's master bath and I went up a ladder and I came back down and I missed the bottom step. And so I kind of stumbled and tripped and I thought, "Uh oh, we might be heading into the, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to do this for a while. And then I'm getting ready to have a baby. I'm getting too fat to go up and down the ladder right now. It's getting, you know, I don't want to put his life or my life in jeopardy. And I don't want to give this thing up. And so I remember making the phone call to my sister-in-law and saying, would you come help me? Like I'm pregnant and, you know, the size of a Volkswagen and all the things. And, And so she did. She came and worked with me. And what ended up happening is then, you know, I had the baby and I still had, the phone was still ringing. People were still calling for work. And so I literally talked to my sister-in-law and said, will you, will you do the painting for me? Like, cause she had went to the same school I did for the two days. And I said, you know, you know exactly what we're doing and I'll just like try to get, get work if you'll like do the work. But then, you know, the phone was still ringing. And so I would just take the baby and I would go look at painting jobs and I would give the bids on those jobs and I would, you know, sell them with what I thought they should do on their kitchen cabinets or their walls or what have you. And then I would send my sister-in-law in to do all of the work. And that worked like a dream. It allowed me to stay home and have that baby. Um, and then I had another baby less than two years later and then another baby um, four years later. And so I just was a baby making machine and she was out actually painting for me. And we got so busy because we, we had hooked up with just the right decorators who were getting all sorts of awards in Kansas city for houses and things. And so, you know, the phone was ringing off the hook and I kept adding, you know, to more women working for me. And basically what I didn't realize then, but I realize now is I was really good at marketing. I wasn't even the most talented painter. The girls that worked for me, they were really talented, but I was really great at drumming up the work that allowed us all to do the things that we were the best at. Despite the challenges that her pregnancy posed, Jennifer navigated this period with ingenuity and determination. She knew this was a time for her to be present for her young family. And through this, she discovered that her administrative tact could help her business flourish, even as the painting was being done by others. She was both resourceful and skilled at marketing which primed her success in the new untapped world of opportunity, Facebook. 
what happened is I, you know, had cranked out three kiddos and was still staying home and the girls were out in the field painting for me. And then this thing called Facebook like came up. Originally, Facebook was just being used for, you know, pictures of your babies and your vacation and what you had for dinner. And then I saw just a couple of people starting to use it for business. And I saw a couple of business coaches who were teaching people how to use social media for business. And I was like wildly fascinated by that. So I took a couple of classes like how to do Facebook ads and, you know, how to build your Facebook and was implementing those things that I saw some business people teaching on that I didn't see anybody else in my industry doing. I started this Facebook page called The Magic Brush. I would start showing pictures of cabinets we painted and I would get, you know, hundreds of people that were asking me questions and sharing with their friends and people were sharing that with their friends and my Facebook page just started growing, growing and growing. It ended up really growing the business in terms of we got a lot of eyeballs on the business, including Extreme Home Makeover. We have a preview of a very special Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Our own Sam Champion went behind the scenes with some very special guests to help one deserving woman get her dreams back on track. Here's a sneak peek. And our name got thrown in the hat for that. And we were selected not once, but three times to do three different houses with like Ty Pennington and the whole crew at ABC, which was amazing. We went from 5,000 followers on Facebook to 10,000 followers to 100,000. Like it just kept growing. But there was like this kind of this holy discontentment that had started in me again. Kind of that same feeling I had right before I got laid off from corporate America. And the feeling was, okay, this is all fabulous. I should be really happy. I've got these eight women, you know, painting for me during the day, but it just doesn't seem like there's just not quite enough money left over at the end of every job. Like, I feel like I'm pricing it appropriately. And, but after I pay, you know, the designer and after I pay the girls, we're getting paid well, but what we're getting paid is not going to be enough to change our family's life. It's very difficult to scale a business like that. So my thoughts were, okay, either I can figure out how to do like a whole nother crew of women and work in like two different houses, two different teams of girls at the same time that should maybe like kind of double our revenue. But then I thought, good Lord, that's going to also double my stress. And I don't want any part of that. But the other thing I was thinking was like, what could I do maybe online? Because I've got a hundred thousand followers on Facebook right now. And the majority of them do not live in Kansas city. And they're asking me how to paint cabinets, how to paint furniture. Like what if I just figured out a way to teach them without them like flying here for an in-person training or something. I hired a guy from my church to come film me making some like DIY painting videos. Hey everyone, so I want to tell you what you can do if you've let paint dry in your brushes, okay? Number one thing that I use is fabric softener. And I thought, you know, the internet's kind of exploding right now, and this was probably about seven years ago. I wonder what would happen if I, you know, put these videos up for sale and just kind of, just kind of see, like, would, would anybody buy a painting video? And I remember a friend of mine telling me, she's like, Jen, I just don't know. Like, you've been giving people painting tips for free for years. Like, can't they find that same information on like YouTube for free? And I was like, yeah, they can. But I also know that I've worked really hard on social media to really develop a relationship with my followers. You know, they, they know who I am. They know my family. And, and I was like, let's just see what happens. So we put painting videos up for sale one weekend. And I remember the first weekend I had them up for sale. We made $5,200. Oh my God. Oh yeah. And I wept. I just, I cried. There was emotion attached to it because I knew it was the start of something. I, I knew it wasn't just, oh, we made $5,200 and now we're done. No, I was on to something. That weekend was really an eye opener. It was really a pivotal time for us where I was like, holy smokes, the internet is the wild, wild west. And so I ended up simultaneously like selling painting videos online. Also, I released like a couple of webinars, like how to do your own cabinet painting business from home. I did that. I charged $47 for it and I had over 400 people buy it and I did a two hour class. So you can do the math on that. You know, that's roughly 20 grand for a two hour class. And I just I, like my mind kept being blown. I'm like, I just don't know what is even happening. Like this is just this is crazy money. I kept the painting business and I did the online work simultaneously for a couple of years. I was living in two different worlds. I was out in the field every day and then I was coming home and working on Facebook every night. 
And even though we were making great money, I was very divided in my attention. And the Bible talks about how like a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so I would feel like when I was out at the painting, you know, in somebody's house, my heart just really wasn't in it that much anymore because I was so fascinated with the online space that I was like, I can't wait to get home and like figure out another video that I can make and sell and see what happened. So I probably held on to the painting company a little longer than I should. I shut it down in 2017 and decided to go all in on the online space. Right before I had shut it down in a year or two before that, I had had so many people asking me, okay, how are you doing your business like online? Like, what are you doing? You have 100,000 followers or 200,000 followers or 100,000 people on Pinterest. Like, what are you doing? Originally, I had tried to kind of share some tips with different people that were calling me on the phone or people like sending me DMs on Facebook. And they're like, what are you actually doing? And I had somebody tell me, well, you should just start like a paid group, Jennifer, where they like pay you and you teach them every month. And I was like, okay, like I'm in a paid group for business. I see what you're saying. I could like, you know, teach them tips on how to grow their social media. And so I started that five and a half years ago. So back in whatever year that would be. And we now have 2,400 women in this group at at $47 a month. You know, they're paying me to learn how to grow their small business. And so we have completely shut the doors to the painting company because my heart was really no longer in that. It was really equipping other women to have massive breakthrough in their business using the internet and using social media. So that's where we are at today. The idea of the soul piece and the mindset necessary to achieve success played a crucial role in Jennifer's own story. And it was something that she was determined to share with others. She had begun to feel that same sense of yearning that she experienced years before. She craved growth and the ability to provide more for her family. Now, the community she fostered through Facebook had developed into a mutually beneficial network. Unexposed talent seeped through the cracks of Pinterest, blog posts with rose gold, chevron print, hanging backyard lights, an online trove of aesthetic wonder. As her business grew, it became clear she could help others harness the mastery she had acquired over these past years. As a woman who loves pretty things, like Pinterest was the best thing since sliced bread. When Pinterest came out, I was like, this is everything. Like it's, it's basically Google for pretty people. I remember one day looking at paint finishes on Pinterest. This is years ago. And I stumbled across this woman and she owned a company called the Turquoise Iris. And I remember looking at a piece of furniture that she painted And I remember thinking that is the most beautiful piece of furniture I have ever in my lifetime seen. You know, I'm looking at her website and I'm like, oh my gosh, this stuff is gorgeous. And I am half the painter this woman is. And I'm looking at her Pinterest and I'm like, something's wrong here. Like she is 10 times the painter I am with, you know, I have 10 times the following though. Like she should have a lot more people like seeing her stuff. And then I had this idea because I was planning on doing a webinar on how to make a living off of painting furniture. I thought, let me reach out to this woman, this turquoise iris woman, (laughs) and ask her if she would want to be a guest on my webinar and just talk about like how to ship furniture. So I reach out to this woman, her name's Dion Woods, and I don't hear anything back from her, you know, and so I give it a couple days. So I reach out to her again. I think it was a Facebook DM. I was persistent. And so the second time I reached out to her, she reached back to me. She's like, you know, I've never done a webinar. And I'm like, girl, me neither. So, you know, (laughs) we're going to be, we're webinar virgins together. And her and I started, you know, a relationship and she got into my coaching group. And that woman today, let me tell you the kind of business that girl is doing. She now has her own magazine. She now has her own line of like painted purses that are like hundreds of dollars because they're all hand painted. She has hundreds of people paying her every month to learn like their own, her techniques and how she does things. And so it has completely changed her family. I just was, you know, a small piece of her puzzle. Like I think God would have made that woman successful anyway, but I love that I just got to have a piece of that. And you're creating a framework to build up other women. Yes, I knew that I was not the most talented painter, but I was good at marketing. And so initially when I opened up this coaching group, I was coaching all creatives because creative people, they're wired a little bit differently. A lot of them are introverts. A lot of them are great with their hands, but maybe not so great with people. And so I was really in the beginning coaching them on, okay, I know that you're an artist, but you don't have to be a starving artist. Like you can make good money at that. Like, let me show you how to work the internet. 
there, there is this thinking, this wrong thinking that if you are an artist, if you're a creative, that you're probably going to be broke. And no, like I say no to that. As she shifted her focus on the hands-on aspect of painting, Jennifer realized the extent to which her tools for success could be useful for others. She had the opportunity to equip women like Dion with the right marketing skills to transform their part-time hobby into a lucrative career. Jennifer vehemently disagrees that artists are tethered to a life of financial hardship. These are the people that make pretty things, the art that makes her and so many others heart pound in the design shop. But what I found interesting amidst all of this is her coaching on the spirit of entrepreneurship or what she saw as God's role in all this. And so I wondered, what exactly does that mean? And how did it all start? I've had this coaching group for five and a half years. And the last Wednesday of every month, I do a live phone call with them. And so I remember the first time a few years ago when a woman had a question, you know, that feeling I would get when I would walk into a beautiful store or, you know, that paint booth and my, my heart would start beating. Like I'd literally react physically almost. And I was like, I need to just ask her if I can pray for her. And And I was nervous because I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's going to be possibly some people here who are not Christians, who may be offended by this, who may be whatever. And and then, you know, so I had this internal wrestle, but I was like, I'm really supposed to pray for her. So I just asked her if I could. She said, yes, I prayed. We both cried. Bada boom, bada bing. It was done. Like, and we moved on. You know, I went to the next business owner. Well, that started happening kind of more often and more often. And I would get, you know, private messages from people after my calls, like Jennifer, oh my gosh, when you prayed for that lady, like I was sobbing because, you know, I, I related so much to her story or would you pray for me too? Or gosh, I just, you know, I haven't been to church, Jennifer, in years and years, but hearing you talk about how God's worked in your business had made me almost want to go back. Like when I started getting those messages, I was like, oh man, okay, we're on, we're, I'm on to something here. It's just, I think that my... Oh, I think it's your being authentic. I'm being authentic. Like I couldn't keep it out anymore. You know, it's like eventually who you are, it comes out. It wasn't just that I was, you know, good at being a business owner and I've got the business gen over here, but the Christian gen over here, it's like, no, this is the whole me. You're getting the whole me in my business coaching. This is how I can most serve your business right now is by not just teaching you strategy, but by also giving you biblical principles that I hope that you'll incorporate into your business, even if we believe different, because I'm, you know, it's not like there's only Christians in my group. There's all sorts of people in my group, but I'm going to show up and run this business group in a way that God's asking me to, in a way that is in direct alignment with what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing on this side of heaven. This is who I am. I'm going to bless you with my business knowledge. And also God may ask me to pray for you at some point. If that's not okay with you, let me know. And gosh, it's just been super powerful because it's one thing to help people get a breakthrough in their bank account. It's a whole nother level when you help people just get a breakthrough in their life. And that is, that is so exciting to me. By helping people have these personal aha moments in their lives, Jennifer realized that strategic business and religious commitment aren't mutually exclusive. How easy it is for us to find ourselves trapped in boxes, unable to merge strengths that, when combined, have the potential to be even more powerful. But Jennifer did find a way to merge her strengths. Faith empowered her sense of strategy and love for business, allowing her to be her true self and bring out the true selves of others. If her faith in God gave her a stronger sense of purpose and added great value to this career she fought so hard to obtain, then why wouldn't she seek to share it with others who were navigating the same uncharted space? So what advice would you give to that person that felt stuck, was maybe working that corporate job and and, and knew that it wasn't quite them? There's a lot of different pieces of advice. At one point when I was in corporate America, stuck in the cubicle, I got so kind of like just bogged down with what was expected of me that I forgot to even like dream about what my life could look like. There was this whole period where I was like, 
this is just all the better it's going to get. Like this is, this is what you do. You just get up and go to work and get yelled at for being late. And you know what I mean? Like I just, there was that time where I kind of just got up every day and did what was expected of me. And then there was this period right after we started having kids where I was also kind of operating under that same, like, well, when you have kids, like, this is what you do. You just, this is how you act. And this is the things you do. And you put everything aside to raise babies. And and I can just remember kind of being on autopilot then also, like now we're worried about making the mortgage and making sure the kids know their ABCs and, and not really giving myself any opportunities to think about, okay, what actually do I want life to look like? What, what would actually light me up? What does winning look like? For the person who's on the other, the other side of this listening, like, have you thought about what you're thinking about? Like, do you still have any dreams? Like, what did you used to dream of life looking like? How can you get back to like dreaming about what you would like to see happen? Because if you don't even have an idea of what you would see life to look like, like first dream, but second, what can you start putting into place to like actually make some of those dreams happen? Like, what's just the first thing you need to do? Do you need to figure out what you're good at? you need to focus on one thing? Like, are you good at 10 of them? And you're like, I don't know which of these things that I could actually be good at. And then just taking one step at a time. For Jennifer, the ultimate goal was to achieve self-actualization, to realize her most authentic self as its greatest potential and channel this into the lives of others. She had finally met equilibrium. She is an inspiring example of what it means to push back at the forces of expectation. Who cares what society is telling you to do? Jennifer's faith is a fundamental aspect of her success, but so is her faith in herself, an essential component of the confidence to move forward. Thousands of women have been empowered by Jennifer, a ripple effect from one to the other learning to achieve this balance of work, life, and spirit. Jennifer's story is one worth learning from. If you're not satisfied, keep moving forward. Keep taking risks. Keep exploring all possible options. Like Jennifer told herself when she broke away from the corporate world, what do you have to lose? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomerantz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zeng, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu with support from Tiffany Dang, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.